Good morning, Tapestry Church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean. I am the high school pastor at the Tapestry Church Richmond campus, and it's my privilege to share with you God's word this morning. Um, as I begin, I have a confession to make. Um, I don't usually begin the sermons like this, but today I'll begin with a confession. And that confession is that I don't like waiting. Waiting. I don't like to wait. I don't like waiting in the gym for someone to be done with the squat rack, so I work in between their sets. I don't like waiting in line as soon as I walk into the Starbucks, so I see a big line, I say, oh, okay, I'm going to go on my phone. I'm going to use mobile order in the store so that I get a coffee before everybody else. And the lineup at Costco, I mean, don't get me started. I don't like waiting in line at Costco. Anybody relate? Okay, just a few of you. Okay, everybody else is saints in here. Just a few sinners in this room. It's okay. Nobody likes to wait. Nobody likes to wait. And that's why we have things like fast food restaurants and express checkout lanes and mobile orders so that people don't have to wait too long. We want fast internet speeds so that we don't have to wait for the YouTube to buffer or wait to watch our favorite TV shows. Anybody in this room remember the dial-up modem? Yeah, yeah. Remember how long it took for us to download a single song? It took hours. Okay, I, this room kind of don't get it because they, they, they were born into the internet where it was like cable and just, you know, like they don't remember the dial-up. But it was painful to wait for a song or a video to buffer. You see that big circle thing kind of going around like, oh, come on, not again. We live in a fast-paced world and it continues to get faster and faster. And people want faster things. And the faster our pace gets in this world, less room we have to wait. Because waiting feels like a waste of time. Waiting feels ineffective and boring. Waiting means delay in our schedules. Waiting is not desirable in our society. No one likes waiting. And our walk with God is also affected by this mindset. Waiting for God could seem inefficient. Waiting for God feels boring. Waiting for God to answer our prayers feel like forever. Waiting for God could sometimes mean a delay in our own timing. I mean, don't you hate it that God doesn't fit in our own schedule and timing? That's a joke. Waiting for God is, is hard. It's difficult. And because it's so difficult and oftentimes undesirable, we tend to take matters into our own hands, don't we? Instead of waiting for God to answer our prayers, we make plans to answer our own prayers through people or orchestrating a certain circumstance. Instead of waiting for God to help us in our difficulty, we make our own arrangements to escape it or overcome it by shortcutting on our morals or biblical standards. We don't like waiting. We have been continuing in the book of Isaiah in our sermon series of the gospel according to Isaiah. And the passage we will look at today shows us that the nation of Judah also took matters into their own hands instead of waiting for God. It is in response to their action that God says what he says through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 30. 
So let's read today's passage together. Today's passage is from Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the NIV. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. A prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels. To that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless, therefore I call her Rahab the do-nothing. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you will all flee away, till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessed are all who wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, just to set the stage in history, the political landscape in the ancient Near East leading up to Isaiah chapter 30 was a mess. Assyria was the superpower at the time, and they were pressing in hard on the northern kingdom, Israel. Remember, Israel used to be one nation, but that split off into two different kingdoms, north, northern Israel kingdom. Southern kingdom, Judah. So Israel at the north, south at Judah, or Judah at the south. Assyria was pressing in on the northern kingdom, Israel. And seeing this, the southern nation of Judah had a choice to make. 
they either go pro-Assyria and pay tribute in the hopes of being left alone, or go anti-Assyria and rely on other nations to get the Assyrians off their back. Two foreign policies. Now, by the time we get to Isaiah 30, Hezekiah was the king of Judah, and unlike his father Ahaz, he chose the anti-Assyrian route because he saw how his father's foreign policy of going pro-Assyria has backfired. It blew up in his face, just as Isaiah has prophesied in chapter 8. So Hezekiah takes the opposite. He goes the anti-Assyrian route. But in order for them to do that, they had to ally with another nation, another powerful nation. So they ally with Egypt, thinking that that would give them a fighting chance to stand up against the superpower Assyria. It is in response to this move, it is response to this alliance with Egypt that God is speaking to, to the nation of Judah in chapter 30 and 31. Now in verse 1, it says, it begins by saying, woe to the obstinate children. Now, anytime when you're reading scripture and the chapter begins with woe to the stubborn children, you know that someone has done something majorly wrong. And it's true. Judah has messed up big time. What do they do? They did not wait for God because they didn't trust him. Judah did not trust their God. And the fact that they did not trust God is shown through their two actions. One, forming an alliance with Egypt, doing what God told them not to do, and two, refusing to listen to God. One, forming an alliance with Egypt, two, refusing to listen to God. Now, it's understandable that Judah makes a such decision because they were politically cornered. The pro-Assyrian policy backfired. For them to continue this way would mean that they had to hand themselves over to be their slaves. But they don't have the strength to stand on their own. So either way, pro or anti, it's a lose-lose situation for Judah. Unless, unless Egypt is willing to be on their side. And maybe, just maybe, together they could overthrow the Assyrian power in the region. So, the nation of Judah makes plans and sends envoys, as the text tells us, to form an alliance with Egypt. Now, what's bad about this plan is that they did not consult God. Maybe they didn't want to because they knew what God would say. They knew that alliance with Egypt was prohibited. You know how kids um, sometimes don't ask their parents for permission because they know what their parents are going to say? So they just go ahead and do it anyway, right? Only child that, that did that or anybody else relate in this room or yeah, thank you, thank you. We've all done it. And that's why there's a saying that says, better to ask for forgiveness than for permission, right? 
Judah was doing this. After all, they're seeking refuge in the very nation that once enslaved them. Remember Exodus? To the Israelites, Egypt is not just another nation. It's a land of slavery. It's it's a land of oppression and death. It is a land that God had commanded them to never return. They must have been in super desperate place to be seeking an alliance with Egypt. But Judah makes an alliance with them anyway. And the worst part about that is, is that Egypt actually doesn't have the power to protect them from Assyria. This is what God says of Egypt in verse 3 of our text. Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. In verse 5, it also says, Everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them, referring to Egypt, who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. Also at the end of 6, verse 6 into chapter 7, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. God is calling Egypt a sitting duck. It just sits there and does nothing. It can't save itself, let alone save another nation. Even though Judah seeks help from help and advantage, Egypt will only bring them shame and disgrace. Their alliance with Egypt will not profit them. Even the king of Assyria, six chapters later, calls Egypt that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. All those who depend on Egypt will end up burning themselves in the process. Sadly, even though we think that's a foolish move on the Judah, we also commit the same sin of not trusting God. Like the nation of Judah, we also come up with our own plans to rely on other things without consulting God. We trust our own experiences more than God. We trust in the resources we have available. We trust in money. We trust in the connections we have with certain people. We trust in the status we have to leverage the situation in our favor. We trust our own knowledge and reason more than God's instruction. We trust in our own abilities and strength, forgetting that we're finite. We trust in our own gut feelings. We trust in common sense. We trust that the contemporary, what, what the contemporary culture considers as wisdom without taking a second to consider whether that is in line with Scripture or not. We trust in these things when we look to them first instead of waiting for God. We commit the same sin as Judah. Not trusting God, but instead making alliances with things that will lead to no profit. Things that would only lead to shame and disgrace. Like the envoys of Judah mentioned in verse 6, we willingly go through the hardship of pursuing other things to trust than God. Investing time and money to execute our own plans without knowing that the help we seek 
is actually utterly useless. When Judah decided to trust in Egypt instead of waiting for God, this meant that they considered Egypt to be better than God. There is a saying, action speaks louder than words. When we choose to trust in our own plans, our experiences, money, connections we might have, all of the above, we're saying that these things are better than God. Our act of choosing them over God says that God is no better than these things. We're saying that these things are more trustworthy than God. Judah's willful distrust was also shown in their refusal to listen to God. In verses 9 to 11, God says, For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, See no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path. And stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Having made up their minds to make an alliance with Egypt, the people of Judah were not interested in hearing counsel that did not confirm their decision. It's actually clear from these verses that they saw the discrepancy between God's plan and their plan. They just didn't want to hear it. So they tell the prophets, tell us what we want to hear and stop confronting us with what God has to say. Just tell us that we're doing something right. Tell us that we're doing okay. As John Oswald, an Old Testament scholar, writes, having decided that Egypt is to be trusted more than God, they do not wish to hear anything that would call their choice into question. Aren't we like this at times? Knowing what the Bible says about the decisions we have made in our life, we can choose to hear the things that won't pose a threat to our comforts or the way of life. We want to hear blessing, not rebuke. We want to be comforted, not confronted. This is a clear indicator that we do not trust God. In fact, this action says, God, we know better. When we, when we disregard God's instructions, it shows that we do not trust God. Because when we disregard someone's instruction, it indicates that deep down in our hearts, we think we know better than them. Right? I mean, would we really ignore the instructions of someone who we knew for a fact were more wiser than us or knew more than us? I mean, if we did, that would be considered mere foolishness. To ignore someone's counsel or instruction means that we don't regard them to know better than us. In other words, to refuse to listen means that we consider ourselves to be better than the other. Therefore, when we disregard God's counsel, we're saying we know better. 
And because we think we know better, we don't trust God. We might deceive ourselves into thinking that we trust God and we might say that we trust God, but when push comes to shove, our actions might show otherwise. And again, actions speak louder than words. When we do this, we're essentially saying through our actions, God, I don't need you. I'm good on my own, thanks. According to today's passage, there are two things that God says will happen to Judah due to their willful distrust in God. First, is that their plan will come to a complete and sudden destruction. In verses 13 and 14, it says, This sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a single fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This imagery shows the fate of Judah's plan. Their plan is so weak and so faulty that their alliance with Egypt will surely and, and, and suddenly crumble like a high wall that is cracked and bulging out. The crumbling of their plan will be so devastating that not even a, single, not even a little bit of their plan will be useful. It will come to a complete failure. Their plan to rely on Egypt will be shattered into pieces and will not bring them the desired outcome. Second thing that will happen as a result of not trusting in God is that their problems will not go away. According to verse 15, it says, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Because you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. According to verse 15, Judah knew salvation and strength was to be found in God. They knew that, but they rejected it. They wouldn't have any of it. Instead of turning to God for help, Judah chooses to flee. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will surely flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. They choose to flee instead of rest, so they will indeed be fleeing from their enemies. They thought their fast horses would help them get away from their pursuers. God says, your pursuers will be even faster. Even though they thought their plans will help them get away from their problems, the result is actually completely opposite. Their problems will continue to persist and haunt them. They will follow them where they go. Their problem is not going to go away. As verse 17 indicates, they will all flee until they are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a single flagpole on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Meaning, 
that the remnants will be so few in number. Here, Isaiah is speaking of the humiliation they will face because at the threat of one, thousands of them will flee. And at the threat of five, all of them will flee because they're so scared. And destruction so devastating that there will be left for them nothing more than a small trace of their existence, like a single flagpole on a mountaintop. Now, if the plan crumbles and the problem persists, what happens next? If Judah's own plans were the only hope and it fails on them, what awaits them except despair? Let's read verse 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. What awaits Judah with all their crumbled plans and their persisting problem is God. Although the NIV translation renders verse 18 as, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, it is actually much closer to the Hebrew text to translate it as, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The writer uses therefore to attach this verse with what preceded the verse. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Because his people did not wait, even though his people did not wait, God will wait for them to be gracious to them. God waits until his people are ready to come to him for help. He waits until Judah acknowledges that he alone could be their help. God waits so that his people would repent and look to him as their only help. Although Judah did not trust him, God waits for them like a patient father waiting for the prodigal son to return home. And when they do, God will rise up to show them compassion. He's not going to sit still and wait for them to return to him. He's going to rise up to meet them, to meet them with his compassion. Just like the father that ran out to meet his prodigal son when he returned home. When our own plans to trust in other things than God fail and the problems persist in our lives, we may be given into despair. But thanks be to God that the good news is that God waits for us to turn to him. That we have a God who waits for us. That he's been waiting to be gracious to us. He's been waiting for us to recognize that none other than God himself could be our salvation. And when we return, he will rise up to show us his compassion. Just as it says in verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. We will find strength when we trust in God. And our willingness to wait for him, our willingness to wait for him is an indicator whether we really trust him or not. After all, you would not wait for someone you do not trust. What Isaiah 30 
teaches us today is that the key to life is found in letting God be God and in training ourselves to have complete dependence on God until we discover that He alone can supply our needs a hundred times, a thousand times better than we can. And He already has in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, showing the entire world, showing us that He alone can save us from what we cannot save ourselves. I mean, isn't that the good news? In closing this sermon, I'd like to read Psalm 19 to you as a reminder and assurance that our God indeed is a trustworthy God above all things, all our plans, all our knowledge and reason, all our experiences, all the resources or techniques that we might be able to come up, none of it compares when it comes to God. And because God is so trustworthy, He's the one definitely worth waiting for. So I'm going to read from Psalm 91. The words will not be on the screen. And I would actually invite you to just close your eyes and... Um, And hear the words and let it soak in to your hearts. Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample, on the, trample the great lion and the serpent. Because you love me, says the Lord, I will rescue you. I will protect you, for you acknowledge my name. You will call on me, and I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. I will deliver you and honor you. With long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. Father God, may it be so. May we see your salvation in our lives. Father God, we ask for forgiveness for the times that we have relied on other things. For the times that we made an alliance with things that you have prohibited us us from. For the times that we have trusted in other things, trusted in ourselves, saying that we don't need you. 
for all the times that we have not waited for you to show up, but instead arranged for our own plans only to be met with more trouble and failure. Father God, forgive us. Have mercy on us. And Father God, we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would enable us to have a deep trust in you. Increase our faith. Deepen our faith in you so that we may trust you even in the times of pressure mounting up against us, we pray that the, by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to see your salvation coming so that we may wait for you, so that we may hope in you because you alone, O oh Lord, are our strength, our shield, 